everyone. I'm Maike Slot and you're listening to Do We Click, a monthly research podcast on the digital relationship between journalists and their audiences. Do We Click is supported by the Dutch Journalism Fund and the Erasmus Research Center for Media, Communication and Culture of the Erasmus University Rotterdam. This is episode 14, and my guest in this podcast is Dr. Tim Grootkormelink. He specializes in the clicking behavior of news consumers, and his research shows that there are many different motivations for clicking or not clicking on something. It's a misconception to think that clicks equal the interest of the audience. Now, before we start this episode, just a short disclaimer. The sound quality of this episode might not be what you are used to. We experienced some technical difficulties and I had a cold during recording, but I promise you we did not compromise on the content. Enjoy this very interesting episode. And now, this. My younger brother is my biggest fan on LinkedIn. Whenever I post an update about my research project or some pictures of a challenge that my students have done for one of my courses at Erasmus University, he's always one of the first to find my post interesting. Now, we don't work in the same field. My research interest lies in the area of journalism and I teach media-related courses at the university. He works as a corporate recruiter and HR consultant for a large IT company. I therefore suspect that he does not necessarily click on my post because he's extremely interested in the subject of my new podcast. He probably has other, more social motivations to click. Because I'm his sister. And he just wants to let me know he supports me. Isn't that sweet? Already about eight years ago, Professor of Media Studies José van Dijk stated that the like button caused the algorithmizing of our feelings. With one mouse click, we can indicate whether we like something. And especially on social media, such as Facebook and Instagram, the like plays an important role. The like button was introduced by Facebook in 2009. And the people behind the social network knew very well that the majority of people on Facebook not often post something. They're mainly lurkers. They do scroll through their timeline and view millions of messages, that's clear from the metrics that Facebook collects, but they are actually invisible to the other users in the network. To change this, the like button provided a fantastic solution. The audience no longer had to make an effort to type something or to upload a picture. With one simple mouse click, Facebook could make the public and their interests visible. The like button is a great success for Facebook. It provides loads of new data and the virtual appreciation that Facebook users receive for their efforts proves to be a great incentive for them to post more similar messages. The button is therefore quickly copied by other social media. The academic world also gains an interest in the like button and starts researching it. The motivations to press the like button turn out to be much more diverse than just liking something. Social motivations, for example, I like something because you're my friend, also play a major role. Not everyone is enthusiastic about likes. Some academics call the tyranny of the like button a danger to our mental well-being. 
Clicks and likes are also important in journalism. We've talked about this before in this podcast, and also this month we will continue to do so. I have a guest in the studio who knows everything about what clicks mean to the audience in journalism, and he has convincingly demonstrated that clicking on something and being interested do not always match. His name is Tim Groot-Kormelink. Tim, welcome to the studio. It's great to have you here. Uh, you received your PhD at the VU, the, the Free University in Amsterdam, last November. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And for your PhD, you investigated the audience in journalism. And the title of your thesis is Capturing and Making Sense of Everyday News Use. In your research, you analyzed the experience of the audience with news. Uh, you spoke to many different members of the audience. Now, most news organizations already collect metrics about this audience, right? They analyze clicks and reading minutes and likes and shares. So there's already a lot of research material uh, present at uh, these uh, departments. Did you also use this as research material? Um, no, I didn't use these existing data uh, in my research. The fact that editorial departments collect these kinds of metrics and also that academics use these data as research material uh, was actually one of the starting points uh, of my research. Um, many people that use these metrics have uh, implicit or sometimes even explicit assumptions about them, uh, such as that the idea that clicks measure the interests of the audience. So we wanted to investigate uh, these assumptions by looking beyond the click, uh, if you will. Um, and we did this by giving more insight in uh, the way news users actually go about using news online, um, when and why they click or not, uh, and also what that means. So we didn't use the statistics or metrics themselves, but instead used more qualitative approaches to be able to analyze to what extent clicks and um, time spent are a good reflection of the experiences and practices of news users. Um, so to get insight into this news behavior and these experiences, we interviewed a lot of people uh, from the, the news audience, uh, and we also observed how they um, use news in their everyday life. All right, so you really collect a different type of data than what news organizations uh, regularly have. Now, why is researching the news audience so immensely important? Well, at the end of the day, journalism, of course, um, exists because of its audience. Um, they are the ones who um, keep journalism alive with their money or with their attention. Uh, and nonetheless, for a long time in journalism studies, um, academics tended to uh, talk more about audiences rather than with them. Um, journalism researchers have generally focused more on news production and news products, uh, for example, example, how the news comes about, how it is produced, um, what it looks like, uh, what it addresses in terms of topic. Um, and news use and news users are received uh, less attention. Um, well, you could say that without this user um, perspective, we cannot, cannot grasp journalism um, as a whole. Um, luckily, um, this has changed in recent years. So we have seen more research into uh, news audiences. Yes, for academia, it's very important. And if we take a more societal perspective. Uh, of course, researching audiences is also very important from a societal perspective. Um, it is very important that news organizations, but also policymakers, um, do not base their policies on assumptions, but on scientific empirical insights into news use. 
Um, take, for instance, the, the filter bubble, uh, the idea that we will ultimately only be presented online with news that we ourselves want to see. Yeah, does this filter bubble actually exist? Well, the interesting thing is that audience research um, shows that, or it suggests that at the moment, there are actually few reasons to believe that we really live in filter bubbles. Um, so through user research, we can test assumptions and myths about news audiences and where necessary, also debunk them. You have very explicitly opted for the audience perspective in your research, and you have shown us that it's indeed very relevant, and I, I completely agree with you. Uh, Maika Olai, who was my guest in the previous podcast, also researched the audience. She interviewed people for her research, and she explained to me that it was not easy at all for them to explain why they actually watched the news. Does that also apply when you ask people why they click on something? Well, I certainly recognize the experience that um, it is not easy for people to share their experience of news. Um, people quite easily share their opinions about news, so what they think about something, but it, that is different from their actual experience. So how do they actually use news in their everyday life? All right, so what did you do to make this clear? Um, to make this clear, we applied um, various creative methods. Um, one example is, for instance, the video ethnography, um, in which we filmed people while using news in their own home, on their own device, uh, on their own apps or websites that they used. Um, and then I watched those videos with the participants and asked them to explain um, what they did and why, using the video as um, a way to get them to talk about their own news use. And this turned out to be a really good way to get people to have insights into their own new shoes. They could like look in on their own new shoes, if mm -hmm. you will. And therefore, in every interview, I heard statements like, I only realize this now, but I always do dot, 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 or um, I had never noticed that I do this and this. And so they really needed these tools to be able to talk about their own use of news and their own experience of news um, in detail. Yeah, so this is more useful than just letting them fill in a survey or something, right? Now, as an audience, we are increasingly spoiled. As I remember when I was a teenager, I was waiting for hours next to my cassette recorder to record that one song from the radio on a tape, which just played only once an hour or something. Now we can watch, listen and read as much as we want via the internet at any time of the day. We have Netflix, we have YouTube, we have Amazon, we have Google News. We have thousands of podcasts, all kinds of websites. And in addition, many people are active on social media, so they also get their news and their information from that. We have become used to all these websites responding to our personal preferences. Now, do you see that reflected in news use? Do people also want the news to be increasingly personalized? Uh, well, a study we did in 2014 uh, showed that people were not really eager to have their news uh, personalized. Uh, at least they didn't want to do this themselves, so they didn't want to explicitly personalize their own news. First, they were afraid of, um, well, they had FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out. They were afraid that they would miss important news through personalization. So for example, they would say something like, um, I skip um, news about the economy nine out of 10 times, but I don't want to risk missing that one important message. Uh, that one important news item. And they also enjoyed the fact that news organizations that they trusted selected news for them. So they would argue, please tell me 
which news is important and recent that is very efficient to me. In the meantime, of course, people have become uh, much more used to personalization through Netflix, YouTube, Spotify. So it might have changed a little bit, uh, their, their preferences in terms of personalization. But we must not forget that people use news to get an impression of what is happening in the world uh, and also around them. And we also shouldn't underestimate the social function that news still has. So people also use news to have uh, things to talk about, to be able to have a chat at the coffee machine or to um, be able to talk along with uh, people at a party. And to be able to do that, you do need a shared experience. So a personalized section on a website or an app can be of added value for sure. But people also still have the need for news that is shared by the community. So even though people aren't necessarily interested in a certain type of news, it can still have a function for them to scroll through the headlines, right? Then at least you can start a conversation with that one colleague who is completely crazy about football. In your dissertation, you clearly distance yourself from the click as a measuring instrument to measure the interest of the audience. Now, the people who have been following this podcast for a while know that I fully agree with that because I've been discussing that already for multiple times. Can you tell us more about this? Why do you so strongly believe that? Sure. Well, our research indeed shows that clicks are a somewhat limited indicator of the interests of the audience. Um, so by looking at how people actually behave when they use online news and letting them uh, explain out loud which considerations they had for clicking or not clicking, uh, we found out that clicking didn't necessarily mean that the user was really interested in a subject. So um, a provocative headline, something like Anders Breivik says PlayStation 2 is torture, it evokes this what-the-hell response. Um, people just want to click to see what this is all about. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a real inherent pre-existing interest in Breivik or PlayStation or torture. No, the headline simply provokes a click. Um, more importantly, we also found that the absence of a click does not mean that people do not want to see the news. We discovered that sometimes the headline is already informative enough. And we especially saw this with long-term issues, such as the uh, situation in Syria. So people explained that they wanted to know that there was a new attack, but they didn't have to read all the details. Just the headline was enough to get an update. So it's very interesting to know this because you don't really get it when you're just looking at the metrics, right? They just give you that many clicks, but they don't explain the reason why. You're also critical by using reading minutes or time spent on the news. And this is still a frequently used measurement in news organizations. At least in my research, I found out that this measurement of the time that people actually spend on reading something is often taken much more seriously than simply cutting clicks. It's also quite logical, no? Wouldn't you assume that the longer people spend on your news site and the longer they read, better it actually is or the more interested they are? Uh, that was indeed a second assumption that we investigated in a similar way. What does spending time on news actually mean from a user perspective? And here too, we found that time spent was not always a good indicator of people's interests. What we saw, for instance, was that a short reading time was sometimes a sign of a high level of interest. Some self-proclaimed news junkies, so people who almost compulsively check the news, they consume the news in such quick and short sessions because they already constantly 
keep up with the news. So they only have to scan uh, news items for the newest information. So what they would do, for instance, was click on a news item and only scan the first or the first two paragraphs because they already knew the rest. They only needed a little update. And they also have the necessary skills to control and navigate their smartphone or computer in a smart way, uh, which made their news use very efficient. Mm -hmm. In addition, we also saw that a longer reading time can sometimes also be a sign of moderate interests. So, for instance, there was one research participant who took a long time to read an article because she was watching TV uh, in the meantime, uh, The Gilmore Girls. Uh, and the article was simply not interesting enough to get her full attention. So there's quite a lot of evidence here that speaks against these quantitative ways of gaining insights into news use and preferences. There's a lot that stays under the radar when you just look at the metrics. But that might mean that we have to warn news organizations not to attach too much importance to it, right? They should be careful, especially when they want to have their choices be determined by these data. Yet, I understand that many news organizations are increasingly dependent on quantitative data. And I've seen it in my own research as well, that many news organizations are relying more and more on it. They are hiring data analysts, they are using metrics to determine which article stays on top of their website the longest or which one they will push on social media. The thing is that there is currently no viable alternative to getting to know the public better on a daily basis. Now, question for you, do we need to get rid of all those data or do you know a solution to this problem? Well, I want to prevent that people think that I'm saying that metrics are bad. Um, no, I think they are a very relevant addition to our knowledge about news use, and they offer opportunities that we did not have before. Consider also, for instance, the A-B testing, in which news organizations test which formulation of a headline produces the most clicks. This can be a very useful tool to uh, generate attention for important news. It is, however, important to consider metrics critically and to always keep in mind what do and what do they do not uh, measure. And news organizations should also consider which metrics match their goals. Do they mainly want to generate a lot of traffic? Then clicks can be a very useful tool. Do they want to build a lasting relationship with visitors? Then it might also be useful to look at something like uh, return visits. So how often visitors return regardless of the time spent or the number of clicks during these visits. Because even if they come for only, let's say, 30 seconds, apparently there is something that keeps them coming back. And so that is also very valuable. Mm -hmm. Or what content makes people subscribe? And in addition, you can, of course, also just ask your audience um, things like, um, which article do you really remember? Which one really resonated? What did you really find worthwhile? What did you really appreciate? And those insights can, of course, be a good addition to the large flow of quantitative data that's already coming uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, that seems like a very relevant addition to me. So you also advocate that, that actually news organizations should not only focus on quantitative measurements, but should also just speak to their audience members. Right? Exactly. I want to ask you a question that I also asked Michael Olai last month. And that is that sometimes journalists fear that they will lose their independence if they listen too much to the wishes of the audience. Uh, to, to look at the metrics, it sort of scares them a little bit. They want to stay really independent. Uh, and what is popular and what is frequently clicked on 
is not always the same as what journalists think is important news. How can news organizations and journalists find a good way to level with that? How can they ensure that in their eyes, important news is read or viewed? Well, first I would say that it's important to emphasize again that clicks can give a somewhat distorted picture of the interests of the audience, because even if they don't always click on it, they do want to know what the important news of the day is, and they experience this as a service in itself. So don't be guided too much by clicking behavior. And maybe also consider whether you reach the people that you should realistically reach. We cannot expect everyone to stay fully up to date and to read every article there is about, for instance, Dutch politics. It is not our daily job to uh, stay on top of that as audience members. Um, but do you at least uh, reach the people who are interested in this? Are their needs met? Then if there's a really important issue, do you also have one good accessible overview article that is widely read? Yeah, so you just have to focus on the, the group that is interested in that particular type of news and also provide something for people who are just want to stay up to date but don't necessarily need to know all the details. Exactly. And what do you think is a good example in the Netherlands or abroad uh, of a news organization that is already doing a great job in that sense in keeping people informed and updated? Well, I think that um, the Dutch quality newspapers, for instance, are already doing this quite well, especially in their weekend editions. So even if you haven't really followed the news on a certain topic very closely during the week, you may still get the feeling that you are up to date again after reading one good analysis. I'm also quite a big fan of podcasts like uh, Today Explained by Vox, um, The Daily by The New York Times, and uh, NRC Vandaag, the Dutch podcast, where you can catch up on one current topic in 20 minutes. Yes, yeah, so podcasts are also a good vehicle for that, to update the audience in a, in a short time period. Absolutely. I think they lend themselves really well uh, to that goal. Yeah. Now, researchers really like to do research and they write complicated articles about that that are published in academic journals, but very practically, right? What uh, journalists can take out of this, what are your main recommendations for news organizations? What should they really learn from your research? Thank you. I think that's a very important uh, question. Um, I think that, well, in addition, of course, to treating metrics critically, I would also want to point out that the various studies uh, we did above all show that people want to understand the world around them um, and that journalism, according to them, is not always providing these insights uh, enough. Um, so people want journalists to explain complicated things in understandable terms. Um, this is even a prerequisite for people to even start being interested in a subject. Um, so take the Dutch provincial politics, for instance. Uh, participants in one of our studies indicated, um, they said, why should I read or watch news about this if I don't even really know what it means? First, I want to know what are they actually doing uh, and what impact does it have on my everyday life? The same applies to the EU. How exactly does that work? And what do I notice of it in my daily life? Why is it important? Why should I care? And people really appreciated it when they were enabled to finally understand something like this. And the great thing is the system around the provincial states um, is probably not going to change very quickly. So you only have to explain something like this once, briefly and very concisely. Um, 
and then you can always link back to it. So that certainly seems worth the investment to me. So the audience also needs journalists to educate them a little bit. In a way, yes. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much for these, uh, these shared insights and practical recommendations and for coming to the studio. It was great to have you here. Very welcome. This was the first Do We Click podcast in 2020. I wish all listeners a happy, healthy, innovative and engaged new year. That was it for now. Next time, I'll tell you more. Will you click again? Dewey Click is supported by the Dutch Journalism Fund and the Erasmus Research Center for Media, Communication and Culture of the Erasmus University Rotterdam.